0: Reacting to the world's best science. The
1: Naked Scientists Newsflash.
0: This is The Naked Scientists with Chris Smith, with Dave Ansell, and with Dominic Ford. And we're kicking off, as we always do, with a look at some of this week's top science stories. And off into outer space to start with, Dominic. That's right.
2: A paper published in this week's issue of the journal Nature presents evidence that the Earth might once have had a second moon. Now, this stems from a puzzling problem with the geology of the moon's surface. Now, if you look at the moon, even just with the naked eye, what you see is that the moon's surface is differentiated into light patches and dark patches. Um, and the dark patches are flatter volcanic planes that we call seas, and the lighter patches are rougher, more mountainous regions. And this is, this gives us the man in the moon? That's right. The the shape of that pattern is the man in the moon. But what's rather surprising is that the seas are clustered together and the mountains are clustered together. Now, in, in most formation models of the moon, you'd expect them to be randomly distributed over the surface, and it, it seems to be beyond chance that these seas have all formed on one side of the moon. So what uh, Martin Drutzi at the University of California and his colleagues have done is to completely reconsider the formation model of how the Moon came to be. Now, the traditional model is that about four and a half billion years ago, a planet about the size of Mars that people call Thea collided with the proto-Earth, totally melted the proto-Earth. And so you had this ball of molten magma out of which some globule will have split off and ended up in orbit about the Earth, and that became our moon.
0: And that would also explain why the moon that the Earth has is so big relative to the Earth compared with other planets with much smaller moons that we see in the solar system. That's
2: absolutely right. The moon is the biggest uh, moon in the solar system of any planet. Now, what Drutty thinks may have happened is that, in fact, two moons formed out of that collision. So you had two moons in orbit around the Earth... And that would be stable for about 100 million years. You could have two moons orbiting about the Earth.
0: Both on the same sort of orbit, Uh, the same distance away.
2: They would be orbiting at about the same radius out from the Earth, but about 60 degrees apart in the sky. But after about 100 million years, those would gradually drift together and eventually collide. And he's wondering, could that collision lead to one side of the moon looking different from the other?
0: Would that be a fairly catastrophic collision, like we were talking about in the first place, or would they slowly catch up and just fairly slowly merge together?
2: They would slowly merge together, and that's actually quite important for the model. Um, Drutzi, uh sums up a potential problem with this theory quite well in his paper. He says, collisions tend to make holes in things. They tend to make craters and basins. They don't tend to make mountains. So how could you make a collision between two bodies make mountains? And he argued that if the collision is slow enough... You don't have enough energy there to melt lots of rock and to dig, dig out craters. And so, what you basically get is a pile of rubble on one side of the moon, a very large pile of rubble that forms mountains. And that's why all of the mountains on the moon are on one side. And additionally, in his computational models that he's run of these simulations, it turns out that the magma inside the centre of the Moon is pushed out to the other side of the Moon by the force of the impact. And, and that that's leads the to sea. Increased volcanism. That leads to the volcanic plains that we see on the near side of the Moon, the Sea of Tranquility and so forth.
3: So is the fact that the, um, the seas are all pointing towards the Earth and the mountains are mostly on what we call the dark side of the Moon, is that just fluke or is it something to do with the mass distribution thing?
2: Uh, It's essentially just fluke because um, it would be fairly random which side of the moon the, the eventual collision would be on.
0: Dominic, thank you. And fascinating as well, because obviously the, the moon is a very iconic thing. We all look at it and people often wonder, well, where does it come from? And the fact there could have once been two of them is even more interesting. I'm just going to drop this one into the equation because I saw this this week and I thought, that is hilarious. This is from the Daily Telegraph this week and it says Swedish man arrested after trying to split atoms in kitchen. A Swedish man has been arrested after attempting to split atoms in his kitchen, claiming that he was only doing it as a hobby, in inverted commas. Richard Handel said that he had the radioactive elements radio. Americium and uranium in his apartment in southern Sweden when police showed up and arrested him on charges of unauthorised possession of nuclear material. And all 31 said he tried for months to set up a nuclear reactor at home and he kept a blog about his experiments, including describing how he created a small meltdown on his stove. It was only later that he realised it might not actually be legal, and he sent a question to Sweden's radiation authority, querying the fact, and they answered promptly by sending the police. I've always been interested in physics and chemistry Handel said, adding that he just wanted to see if it's possible to split atoms at home. Um, The police raid took place in late July, the police haven't commented. Um, Handel could face fines or up to two years in prison Um, It says, although he says the police didn't detect dangerous levels of radiation in his apartment, he now acknowledges the project wasn't such a good idea. From now on I will stick just to the theory he said. I think that's absolutely delightful (laughs)
3: That is absolutely brilliant, although he's not the first person to try this. There was an American school kid who managed it a few years back. Now, back onto the um, astronomical theme. Um, NASA's most recent mission to Jupiter, which is called Juno, was launched this week, and it's actually got a crew of three. The three aren't, however, normal astronauts, because that's kind of expensive. They're actually three Lego figures attached to the outside of the spacecraft. Outside? The, the outside. Gosh. <laughs> Sounds a fairly harsh environment. Yeah, indeed. The figures are representations of the Roman god Jupiter, his wife Juno, and Galileo, um, who was the first person to discover the moons of Jupiter. Um, And for that matter, any moons around any planet other than Earth. Juno um, is going to Jupiter as um, it's the largest planet in the solar system and contains more mass than all the other planets combined and so it probably started forming before the other planets so it may tell us about the early evolution of the solar system Juno is going to study the atmosphere and the magnetosphere of Jupiter to try and discover more about its composition and its structure the figures should be going on a very long journey, about 2.8 billion kilometres, first on an orbit which sends them out just outside um, the orbit of Mars and getting an additional kick from the Earth's gravity in 2013 and arriving in Jupiter in 2016 when Juno can start its mission. Unfortunately, for any Jovian children out out there who may come across these Lego men, they're actually made out of solid chunks of aluminium, and therefore they're not articulated. So playing them could be rather what, dull. Why aluminium? Why not traditional plastic with the yellow face? I think what's probably going on is that a lot of plastics do what's outgassing. They kind of you get, get sort of substances which evaporate out of them, and then they can recondense on things like lenses and really sensitive bits of equipment. So probably someone in NASA is going. Uh, you're not using proper Legos, you're going to have to make that of aluminium instead. Is this just a cynical? publicity stunt are they just trying to appeal
0: to young people kids and and get people like us talking about it
3: i mean i think it's a publicity stunt certainly um the, and they are attempting to but i think less of, not quite entirely cynical they're basically trying to get kids interested in space science and general science and engineering so they've got a big project involving lego um, in order to just get people interested in science engineering and space
0: because jupiter's absolutely huge i heard the stat, maybe you could fit, say, a thousand Earths inside Jupiter. It's certainly got a storm on it, which is the size of the whole planet Earth, just in one tiny corner of Jupiter.
2: That's right. It's the largest planet in the solar system, weighing several hundred times the mass of the Earth and measuring ten times the radius of the Earth across. So, for example, there's a hurricane on Jupiter, the great red spot, which measures the size of the Earth across, and that's been blowing for several hundred years. And in fact, it's because of the weather systems on Jupiter that it's really such a fascinating planet to study. Jupiter rotates on its axis every 10 hours, despite being a huge planet. So that's at tremendous speed. So a day on Jupiter is actually 10 hours, not 24. That's right. It's less than half the length of a day on the Earth. Now, given how big Jupiter is, that's spinning at phenomenal speed. And that drives tremendously strong wind systems that creates the banding of troops that we see and these hurricanes like the Great Red Spot. And it's really fascinating to understand those more.
0: Indeed. OK, thanks, Dominic. Now, how do bloodthirsty vampire bats home in on the best place to bite and therefore guarantee achieving a trouble-free feed. Well, the answer is that they've evolved their own built-in infrared detectors to pinpoint where the best blood vessels are. And David Julius, from the University of California, San Francisco, is behind the discovery. Hello, David. Hello. What made you think that bats might actually be resorting to temperature to guide them to where they should sink their teeth in this way?
1: So it's been known for, uh, for you know, several decades that bats have these so-called pit organs on their face that uh, are heavily innervated with nerve fibers that allow them to detect infrared radiation. What we've done is to ask what the molecular underpinnings of that system
0: might be. So how these special pit structures on their faces can actually pick up infrared or heat? That's right. And how did you approach it? What did you do?
1: We're sort of more generally interested in the the whole mechanism of temperature sensation. Uh, How we as humans, for example, detect things like hot and cold. Uh, and, and we've been interested in, in finding out how this works in animals that um, really sort of take thermal sensations to the extreme in a way, and use this in a different but generally related manner. And what we did was to use some new methods in genomics, what they call deep sequencing or DNA sequencing, where we can really profile uh, all the genes that are expressed in different tissues. And we ask what kind of molecules are expressed uh, in the uh, in the nerve cells that send their projections to these heat-sensing pits and are known to be involved in the infrared detection mechanism. And and we look through those to find molecules that might be involved in this form of what turns out to really be heat sensation.
0: Okay, so we know that our skin is sensitive to heat, and we have a pretty good idea how it detects heat. There are various chemicals which are on the surface of nerve cells that sensitize those nerve cells when the temperature goes up so are you saying that a variant of one of those is being used by the bats on their face in order to not just detect temperature but to specifically detect temperature relevant to body heat
1: yes that's exactly the case so what we've shown is that the bat expresses a form of a protein that we also use to detect heat But the form of the protein that the bat expresses is in some ways optimized where the the temperature required for activation is lower than it is for our heat sensors and enables them to detect body heat coming from their prey, from a blood supply, from a cow or a pig, what have you. So the basic underlying mechanism is the same as the one we use, but they have some little bit of genetic trickery that enables them to modify the protein so that it's more sensitive to heat and can pick up radiant heat from their blood supply.
0: So they're using the same genetic machinery that they would use elsewhere in the body to pick up when they're being burned or things are getting too hot. But in these special facial regions, they are tweaking the gene a bit so that it becomes more sensitive at a lower temperature. So they can use those organs to see where there is heat radiating from the right bit of an animal they want to bite so they can infer where the blood vessels must be.
1: Right, exactly. In the body of a mammal, the sensory nerve fibers, for example, that... uh That allow you to sense temperature or touch or pain uh, are distributed into different what we call ganglia that contain clusters of nerve cells and those that innervate everything from the neck down are in one set of ganglia and those that innervate everything from the neck up are in another set and in our bodies those two sets of neurons are more or less the same there are some slight differences in the expression of genes but pretty much what you see in one cluster of neurons is the same as in the others and in the vampire bat What we found is that in this particular gene that expresses this heat sensor, the nerve clusters that send nerve fibers to everything from the neck up to the facial area, which includes these heat sensing pits, the expression of this one heat sensor is different. The protein coming from that gene is modified so that it takes on this different form. And in fact, that's one of the uh, big clues that tells us that this gene is likely involved in this specialized function of the vampire bat, namely infrared sensation, because it is modified and it's modified only in those clusters of nerve cells that send uh, their nerve fibers to this region of the body that is involved in infrared detection.
0: There are other animals that also home in on heat. There are some snakes and vipers, for example, that aim for the hot spot, because that's where they want to envenomate, because they, I guess, figure that if they put the venom where the heat is, that's where the blood is, so it will act most quickly, and they'll also guarantee a strike on the animal. Do they use the same mechanism as your bats, then?
1: Um, they use a mechanism that's um, that's related, but in detail different. One of the uh, great examples of this, in terms of pit fibers, is, is a snake that lives out in uh, around my area here, called the Western Diamondback Rattlesnake. And it also has what we call facial pits. They're somewhat different structure than a vampire bat, but generally the similar plan. And they detect, you know, radiant heat, say, from a squirrel or a mouse that they're trying to find in a dark burrow at night. So it allows them to see the animal as a radiant, illuminated figure. And they use a protein molecule that detects temperature that's a member of the same protein or gene family is the one found in the vampire bat and the one that we use for heat detection. It's encoded by a different gene, but they're part of the same gene family. And so overall, the mechanism is similar, but the exact molecule that's used is different in its detail and in its structure.
0: And just to finish up, David, given that you've got this new insight into how this gene can change its behavior if you do what the vampire bats are doing to it. In other words, make it sensitive at a lower temperature. How does this inform our understanding of how pain is signalled in the nervous system and could there therefore be some uses of what you've discovered? Yeah,
1: Yeah, so that's an excellent question. And the the molecule that we express, which by the way I should say is the the target for pungent agents from things like chili peppers, so the molecule that, uh, that we're talking about here that's involved in temperature sensation in the bats and in our own nervous system is what allows us to appreciate sort of that hot zing from chili peppers. Um, We're interested in that molecule, as are many other labs, because there's evidence to suggest that it is also modified by agents that are produced during inflammation and tissue injury that then sensitize the whole system so that you now, for example, would uh, appreciate a lower temperature as being something painful. So the example would be if you have a sunburn and then you get in the shower And the temperature is normally what you consider to be warm and very comfortable. You might consider that or, or perceive that as being noxiously or painfully hot. And that has to do with the fact that these inflammatory agents are acting on this molecule to lower its threshold to heat and therefore generate a perception of pain, even in temperatures that normally you wouldn't consider painful. And understanding how that occurs and how changes in this molecule and how the structure of this molecule is involved in those sensitization mechanisms is very important for understanding pain hypersensitivity, especially in the context of tissue injury. And looking at the structure of these special BAT receptors gives us some clues about what parts of the molecule Might be involved in those kinds of temperature shifts.
0: Who would have thought it? We know that garlic drives vampires away, but now maybe that chili attracts them. David, thank you very much. This is David Julius. He's from UCSF, and you can find the work that he was talking about published this week. It's in the journal Nature. Thank you, David. Now, another Big breakthrough this week is uh, a piece of research that's come out of Columbia University. It's been published in the journal Cell, and it's by Asa Abeliovich And what he and his colleagues have been able to do is to take skin cells, so-called fibroblasts, and convert them directly into brain cells by injecting a modified virus, which brings into the cells three special genes which are what are called transcriptional regulators. These are genes which control the behaviour of other genes and they're normally active in the front part of the brain. So what they've been able to do is to persuade... Skin cells, 68% of the time after this virus is introduced to them, to turn into, in a dish, as they watch, mature adult nerve cells. They look like nerve cells, they behave like nerve cells, firing off nerve impulses, they behave and respond to drugs in the same way that nerve cells would, and even if they take these cells they've made and they inject them into the brains of developing mice, after the animals are born, you can take a section through the brain and you can see these human. Uh, because i have used human skin as the origin for this, you can see these human new, new neurons embedded in the brains of these mice, actually wired in and functional. Now, why is this important? Well, for a start, it means that you can make new nerve cells without having to first turn the cells into stem cells, which we know is involved uh, or can be used, but we know is involved in making mutations or genetic changes to the cells. So it's beneficial from that point of view. But the real piece de resistance is that they also did the study using skin cells from patients who had Alzheimer's disease. And what they ended up with were neurons that behaved biochemically, showing exactly the same biochemical abnormalities that you see in nerve cells from people who have Alzheimer's disease. And so this is a way of making a very faithful model in a dish of cells which behave biochemically just like the cells that a person suffering from a disease, in this case Alzheimer's disease, actually has and therefore it gives you the opportunity to test new treatments or new drugs or experiment in other various ways on a very faithful reproduction of what that person's got wrong with them without actually having to try it on the person or without actually having to do experiments uh, on cells that
3: may in their own way be an unreliable model to use. Does that mean that if skin cells effectively have the same problem as the brain cells in Alzheimer's disease, then Alzheimer's disease is actually a whole body problem rather than just a brain problem? Well, not necessarily, because
0: remember that the genome that you have is present in every cell in the body. Uh, You're using that giant recipe book to do everything. So when you turn these skin cells into brain cells, they start turning on all the genes that brain cells would. And so when the cells are in the brain, they produce too much of this protein beta-amyloid, or they process the beta-amyloid wrongly. They chop it up in the wrong way. So instead of degrading it into something harmless, it produces a chemical which starts to accumulate and build up into aggregates in the brain. And for that reason, um, it's very hard to study this except in animal models because you want to make an animal that has Alzheimer's disease but animals don't naturally have Alzheimer's disease so any model you make is an unreliable indicator and also if you try doing it with stem cells you introduce genetic changes into the cells and then you don't know if you're studying the real disease or some kind of problem that you've made in making the cells this seems to avoid those problems because it's a much gentler process so I think it's therefore a very very encouraging breakthrough That's it for this week's news. You can follow up on any of those stories if you'd like to. They're all on our website at nakedscientist.com forward slash news if you'd like to read a transcript of those stories or if you would like to see the references for them.
1: The Naked Scientist Newsflash.
0: Reacting to the world's best science. For more information, look us up online at nakedscientists.com.